I always like to ask myself, is this serving me or is this serving the story? And if it is, is it doing its job to serve the story? Because this is about more than myself. And if you keep yourself always in the story, then it's about you and not the characters nor the world. And that's like the most important part. Welcome back to Nothing Shines Like Dirt, episode 42. I'm Leslie Shannon. And I'm Elise Siebert. Today we are speaking with triple threat Sarah Kogan, who designs costume, lighting, and production. We talked to her about creating a world, assistant costume designer for the CBS sitcom Kevin Can Wait, and being comfortable in the unknown. <laughs> I just finished watching the entire uh, Roanek season of American Horror Story, and I had to literally put on like um, I can't watch it. Moana oh, music yeah, so that I could go to sleep. Same, yeah. I I wouldn't even begin. I haven't started to watch it because there is particular type of horror and or or thriller or like there's a certain brand that I can't do mm-hmm. my imagination it's one of the reasons why I love being in this industry is because my imagination is super vi- vivid and I can take like any little thing and turn it into a story and that's horrible when you're trying to go to sleep oh, and yeah. you've seen really scary things I know I talked to somebody about it this weekend because um I was up at a and b and we were talking about minds that don't stop and I was like oh yeah I'm that like I wake up and I'm immediate like all right, we're back to 120%. Like, I don't even need my coffee. Like, we're just going. We're just going. And this guy was like, how do you go to bed at night? And I was like, well, I suffer from a really active mind. So I have, like, done two things. And especially because I'm such a visual person as a designer, I get, like, a lot of flashes of imagery. So I've learned how to, like, navigate them. So, like, I knew. I was like, I'm going to put on Moana because I just watched it. And it's cute. And it makes me happy. And I identify with this Disney commercial cartoon I mean because I'm a female trying to like who's not satisfied with my current position and the status quo and wants more so I really identify with this and I'm gonna just listen to this music and picture the scenes and I'll be able to sleep tonight and it worked and like that's what I do to hijack what my mind whenever it's starting to go down those like dark vivid visual places because I'm super visual you have to learn how to stop it yeah yeah like, like or like it's redirect, redirect it. yeah i stopped yeah. trying to stop yeah it i guess it's I not real, stop yeah. it yeah it's like redirect it yeah, yeah. i yeah i've also like if it's really fascinating i'm super interested in how the mind works and how people work and makes sense um since i do costume design as well as like all the other designs that i'm fascinated with, with how we function and one of the things that takes a lot of energy is like trying to stop things and like the idea of willpower and we only have a finite amount of willpower apparently based on the studies um in the book willpower um (laughs) it's kind of an amazing book and sounds amazing it's pretty amazing you'll be like this is life-changing um and so trying to stop it what i found and like exert that willpower of like i will bend my mind to my reason makes the imagery come back in like a lot stronger force and so instead of allowing that to be the habit loop I like I said I play music or something that'll keep me from going to those really vivid places no that makes sense I remember when I was a kid my mom 
um, I had like this reoccurring nightmare and my mom kind of like, I don't remember how she taught me or what she did. I wish I did. Cause I feel like this would be a much more useful story, but, um, she, um, told me, she's like, no, you help to direct your dream the way that you want it to go. And so I kept having this reoccurring dream and she taught me how to actively while I was sleeping, I don't, I have no idea how, but to actively while I was sleeping to kind of like alter the story to where it was happy instead of scary. Mm, and yeah. Lucid dreaming. Yeah. That's a, a thing I want to actually study. Tim Ferriss talks about yeah. using that to hone his skills so that sleep is like an active thing. Cause a lot of a creative process as well. Yeah. yeah. And like a lot of, you know, for example, like with Tim Ferriss and him learning his skill sets, he talks about like lucid dreaming allows you to actually go through and practice your moves. Like, um, I trained horses. So what I do sometimes is I don't want to lose that skill set. So I actually visualize what it was like to like be on the horse and which moves do what with my body. And that, that activity actually strengthens those skill sets and Mm -hmm. keeps them from going away. Mm -hmm. Much like they say you should visualize your life and that like how you want it and the things you want in your life for the same reason. So your mom taught you how to lucid dream. I'm super jealous. <laughs> I don't think she realized that's what that's she was awesome. doing. But it's really funny because when I dream now, um, the way that I dream, it often feels like a film. Mm. I dream like in a film. Like I, the, the perspective cool. that I have, mm-hmm. I'm like a character in a film as opposed to um, the way that I've heard other people describe their dreams, which mm-hmm. it's it's interesting. I yeah. I've had this... Like really noticing as I've as I'm getting older, I have these dreams that I know I've had before, and I know the world I'm in. Like mm-hmm. I like start dreaming, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, this isn't the re- like the same dream, but I know this world and I know this relationship, and I don't know if anybody's experienced that, but it's really bizarre. And I'm like, I don't know, I just know how to navigate the world that whatever world I'm dreaming in. It's no. really crazy. That that's makes like, perfect sense. Yeah. Dreaming is one of those things too that's like so creative. Mm-hmm. I love that mm-hmm. we're like we're we're we want we are gonna get to talking about film, but like dreams are cool. I use so I use sleep as a form of allowing my mind to solve a problem for me a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I like to lay down and actually think sometimes, or sit and just literally think, um, because I feel like if I allow my mind to do its thing, it pretty much answers the problem effortlessly for me and I just have to give it time you know I talk about that a lot about design when people ask me about how you go about designing something um I think it's really important to start the process as early as possible because your mind makes connections that logic doesn't always make right the subconscious is your best friend when storytelling because storytelling in a lot of ways has to be intuitive there's a logic. Instinctual, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's a logic behind it, and there is a there are certain patterns and rhythms that we all look to follow, and like you can see in successful storytelling, like if you were to, but at the end of the day, you have to have that level of being willing to listen to your instinct, and also um, a lesson I learned from my father was to live in the uncomfortable of being in the unknown, Right. And that the longer you can be in the unknown and be okay without having an answer, the more likely you are to find the best answer rather than just a answer. 
I need to know your father because like <laughs> that's a daily problem I have with myself. <laughs> I mean, it's great. I, I think my a dad lot of is, people, you know, live with that. Like yeah. the unknown is really scary, mm-hmm. especially nowadays when we have so much control mm-hmm. with technology and communication. Like, like mm-hmm. you, if you say you're going to meet somebody, if you're not there, you send a text. Whereas before, like if you said you were going to meet somebody and you didn't make it, they just thought you wouldn't show up. There's just more control over... Mm-hmm our relationships and everything. Right. Or if you were 20 minutes late, people just kind of waited for you because they were like, well, we'll be here eventually. Yeah. And I'll do something while I wait. Like, or me, my brain would, yeah, (laughs) like that, that. Or me, I'd be like, oh my God, they died. That's like, (laughs) I have like such a like horrible mom sense of like the worst possible thing happened. That's where my brain goes, which is, you know, not great. But okay. I mean, my grandmother was that way. And she, you know, she was born in 1920, uh, let's see, 27, uh, right, I think. Um, we believe you. I feel like I'm wrong, <laughs> but I think it's right. And she was like that way. She'd be like, don't take this road because there's no exit. So take this other road, even though it takes you longer, because there's an exit in case something happens. And you're like, it's fine. We're fine. We'll be fine. And you're like, you know, but yeah, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. How did your dad instill that in you, like living in the unknown? Like, was there a specific oh. instance in your life, or when I was young, I was young? I'm trying to figure it out. You know, he's um an attorney, and he does a lot of. Um, at the time when I was younger, he did a lot of family law, but then also a lot of personal injury, and a lot of times, I kind of grew up with him doing all of that, and so, um. A lot of times he had these clients who have their case and you're trying to figure out what's really real and then, you know, and what they're really able to kind of get for, for their pain and suffering, right? Um, and he has to live in that. Like if you make a judgment too quickly, you cut off all the other possibilities and that you really want to be open to as many possibilities as possible, right? Which is kind of a problem today because so many people don't want to make a decision because they're afraid of cutting off a possibility. But I feel like oftentimes that is more due to like, they haven't been listening to what the really the right answer is or they're second guessing their answer versus really listening to the instinct. So with my father, it was always about that. And I can't remember a specific moment, but I just remember somewhere early on. And it might have been while I was in college and a little older to like really understand it. Um, but I mean, my dad's been kind of really paramount in the foundation of my thinking and the way I think. And then also a lot of the major life decisions that have led me to the place I'm currently at. So, um, and just having that ability to be around someone who's not looking for an immediate response or answer that's click, you know, clear and, you know, I don't know, obvious or whatever. Like, it's just interesting. He's been very good at that. Yeah. But a lot of times I, um, I find it in any of my creative work that sometimes the best answer doesn't come until the last possible moment mm-hmm. where it's like do or die kind mm-hmm. of thing. And it, if sometimes it feels like it just comes out of 
thin air. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't come from me. It comes, it feels like it comes, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this, like your creative mm-hmm. genius that like gives you these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's kind of it too. Like sometimes you don't need to know the answer until the right time. Mm-hmm. And that helps dictate the next part of the creative process right. too. Yeah. I guess it's kind of being okay with being on a need to know basis, right? Creativity is like, I'll tell you when it's when you, time yeah, it's like when I get there yeah. when, when we get there when you need this information but until then just hang on yeah just believe we'll it's coming there. Yeah. yeah totally yeah totally. Um, so how did you start designing like what was that um, that journey like for you because um, you said you started when you were really young right yeah I started at 19 yeah um, so what happened was, let's like rewind back to even before that. So when I was five, we moved up to Redding, California, which is northern, middle of nowhere, cow country, horse country, like rodeo car show and the fair where you, you know, hawk your pig are the biggest things that happen. Elise and I know a little bit about those sorts of areas. Yeah. 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 So, um, <laughs> and we moved up there and I saw this like, thing called Kids Unlimited, which unfortunately I think just shut down. And it was a big musical review, basically, performance. And it was a summer camp. And I was like, this is awesome. So from that moment, I started training as a performer. And at eight, I saw Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Um, They did, I believe, I keep telling myself it's the 12th night because it was my favorite Shakespearean play. And um, I fell in love with theater. And I was like, this. And just storytelling. And I was like, this. Whatever this thing is in front of people this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I knew it at eight and every decision I made from that point was about moving closer. So at the time, you know, when you see a show, you only think that, you know, an actor is the role that you can have in telling stories, right? That you have to be a performer of some sort because that's what you see. And then you go, oh, there's a director who tells them what to do. Okay. So then that's the other option that you have, right? Well, I started doing, I thought, any actors can do a ton of things. So I'm going to do whatever I can to be a, be a great actor. You have to know how to do martial arts and like stage combat, which means you have to have an understanding of combat. You have to, un- so I trained, I took singing lessons. Uh, I took dance lessons for a short while and then I started training horses for the same thing of like, you know, I wanted to be in Westerns at the time. You know, I still would like love to be in a Western in a weird way. Just like put me in the background being like on a horse. Um, <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. So, I like trained horses, learned how to do some small like vaulting tricks on the horses. And then, um, you know, went to a school where homeschooled for a few years, a lot of years actually. And like for the intent and purpose of learning even more skills. So I took boxing classes, mixed martial arts classes, like anything and everything to be a great performer. And then I had tonsil surgery um, at the end of my junior year in high school and they hit a nerve and I lost my voice just in time for like NYU auditions and, you know, Yale auditions. And it was like, I knew I wouldn't get into a program as just an actor because I was heavier at the time. So I knew I'd be a character actress and that'd be really hard to get in because there's so many character actresses and they need a lot of ingenues in, you know, college programs. So, um, I felt like, I didn't know what to do, uh, and it was too painful to deal with going to vocal therapy, and I would have had to go anywhere from two and a half to four hours away to go to a, ther- a good therapist, so it just seemed like an impossible feat. So 
didn't get into any of my dream schools, which was a blessing because I got into UC Santa Barbara. And this is where my design career started. I showed up and Tony Kushner's my first quarter taking this drama class and Tony Kushner comes and he's like, you want to be an actor? Go live life. You can go to grad school for acting. Don't do grad school. I mean, don't do college for acting. Go live life and experience things because you need those to draw on as an actor. And I thought, okay, Tony Kushner, I'm going to do that because I was still (laughs) struggling with my voice and it was hard to just have a regular conversation. So projecting on a stage was like impossible. And um, I hated it. I thought I was going to leave. I thought I was going to drop out of college because I just, nothing excited me. And I Mm -hmm. thought, why am I here being unexcited? And I really struggled with the reading and writing side of college because I'm dyslexic. So everything took me four times as long as my classmates and the professors didn't care. And um, it was bef- probably a little bit before. I feel like now there's more like they have scripts and yeah. stuff like the the font of things to help with. Have you seen that? No, but that sounds probably like they would. I mean, I took I also realized like I took classes to help with my um, reading disabilities. I, from a young age, I've had problems in being in classes. And then I took classes in in high school to help with my reading and I realized I don't think I put it on any of my college apps so like that would have helped and it would help with my SATs so I, I should have asked for more assistance than I did um, but it's also why I'm so good at what I do like I'm a visual learner I'm a visual person and uh, I'm an emotional person like I really register emotions and so here we are at the end of my freshman year of college I'm auditioned for the acting program and I don't get in because they didn't know who I was. And they're like, well, we only, you know, come spend the summer with us and audition again in the fall and you'll be in. And I was like, well, I'm going to Costa Rica during those auditions and that's more important to me. And I don't know if I want to study acting in college. Like it's been my whole life. So, um, I, and I should have said to part of this story, it's a really long story. Sorry. (laughs) Um, no apologies. Part of the story too is in eighth grade, I did an eighth grade play as my project, eighth grade project. And I got a group together. We wrote the play. And then I basically produced it with my mom. And my dad and I tore down a wall so I could have the space for free. And I made all the costumes and did all the sets. And I like, so all of this, and become, and I did every show that I worked on. I did the help paint sets and did the costumes. And it was just anything and everything to be involved in any aspect of it. And so then... We get to the end of freshman year of college and I'm devastated because I didn't get this audition. And my dad goes, well, you always like doing all the costumes in the sets and somebody's got to do that for all these actors. So why don't you go talk to somebody about it and see? And I did. And that was like, that conversation changed my life basically with my dad. Like my path in life completely like veered off into another direction. And I sat down with a costume design professor and she said, here's what you should take. And signed, she signed me up for a dance concert to assist on. And I t- did like introduction to theater design and introduction to other things. And then the next quarter did intro to costumes and intro to lighting design. And that's when I fell in love with both. So I really became passionate about costumes and lighting design. And from that point on, I started designing. And when... I was a senior, I had finished all my course curriculum, so I just spent the last six months of college like designing shows and taking class, like design classes and 
you know, interviewing for grad schools and getting into UC San Diego where I got my master's and honed all those skills even further. And then I like moved out to New York after spending some time in London and just hanging out in London and experiencing that theater scene a little bit. And then kind of just started that journey here. And that's basically like the really long journey to this place. It speaks to, because we've worked together on a short before, mm-hmm. the psychology you take for designing your costumes, like understanding it. I, I feel like actors and actor training kind of gets into that, like, mm-hmm. you know, the background of the character and like mm-hmm. those little details, like it really speaks to, it's just like elevated your creativity and your design work. It's Thanks. really cool. I feel really lucky. I One of the things that happened along this kind of path to where I am is I worked with a L.A. casting director who happened to open up a studio in my hometown because she had moved there for family reasons. And that education there was, I mean, I studied Meisner, Stanislavski, Adler techniques, really got into breaking down of a character and their psychology. And that was the part of it I loved. So... I I mean, that's why I love design. I get to do that with every character versus just the one that I'm playing. And um, that education with Rebecca was the most important, I think, in terms of the foundations. How I break down a script is largely based on that. And then it was definitely amplified with all my mentors, like at Santa Barbara, which they were phenomenal. Um, shout out to Vicky and Diane and Anne <laughs> and then Judy Dolan at UC San Diego. Like they just, those four mentors of mine really helped. Well, five with Rebecca. They all really helped me get to the place that I'm at now with how I break down and think about character and the story and the world. And I'm definitely like a world builder. So, and it makes such a difference. Like those oh, little all the details. In the world. And, yeah. and that's something I know. I, um, we wanted to talk to you about today is like sometimes in the indie world where money is not mm-hmm. a strong resource, mm-hmm. those little details can get lost because they don't have money to hire proper design mm-hmm. people or, mm-hmm. or like creative, great design people are hired, but they're, they're working on so many projects cause they're trying to survive, you know, that kind of world. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. what advice do you have for indie filmmakers when they're looking at, finding a design person and a collaborator, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, like what questions do you ask yourself or what would you ask mm-hmm. them to bring on a project and kind yeah. of find that relationship? Okay. So the questions I'm hearing is one, if you're um, an indie filmmaker, how do you find the details is if you can't afford somebody. Right. And then there's the question of how do you have that conversation with designers to make sure you find the right person? And then how do you do that on budget? Is that it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. I'm going to, Answered. That was like five questions at one. Yeah, thank I, you. No, it's Thank fine. you. I just want to make sure I'm answering the right ones. Um, uh, so, first off, to answer the first question of how do you have design if you don't have a designer, I'm pretty consistent with this one. I think every director um, needs to have a lookbook, and people think that a lookbook serves the purpose of getting funded, and that's the actually that's a byproduct of actually doing it properly. The lookbook serves as essentially, I would say like your thesis statement of why you should get to do your film in the way you are doing it. And it attaches you on a deeper level to your story. So people listen to how you say it over what you say. 
And in film, you know, it's a visual art based in literature. And the literature is the script. And obviously the film is its visual representation. So the how you say it is your video, visual, sorry. How you say it is your visual approach and the what you say, you know, and your audio sound is huge in film. I will. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> huge. You, yeah, you absolutely have to have good sound probably more than anything else. Um, and though what you say is your script, right? So how you say it, your visual and audio approach, the what you say is your script. So the point of doing a lookbook is to really build that relationship with the visual. And I think it's very important to do this early on in advance and also be willing to be flexible and live in the unknown of what that is, right? And being willing to allow other people, once you bring them on, to make the changes. But it's like creating a map for your ship to be able to sail across the ocean. Now, if you do it without a map, you'll probably get to where you're going. It might take you a little longer and your ship might be half sunk, right? But you'll get there. And it'll be a rough ride. But if you make a good map and you give your team a guideline, then it makes the process a lot faster. So this is also how you can then maximize the use of your design team and your creatives that you bring on. Not only your designers, but your your DP and your cinematographers and stuff like that. So it really is a conversation about who are these characters? What is the world they live in? And how do we want to see them? What is this revelation of form? And that, and I would go through, ask those questions with everything, right? Um, so start with, like, let's say the character is in a world and is going to then go out, change, and come back a different person, right? So in the beginning, it's about this person really being a part of the world that they're already in. And as they go out, that shifting. So how does that shift happen in the world? Do they go out into the unknown and they stand against it? Like when you think of the explorers in the, you know, early explorers, there they are in their period dress, right? Trudging along through the forest and they definitely don't fit into that world. And then, you know, you see those explorers who then have taken on an appropriated aspects of the locals who have survived in the world or they're like, you know, and they are now transformed with their costume and their dress in the world that they, that they live in. Um, how does that shift when with camera? Because camera is a big part of revelation of form. How do we want to see this character? How do we want to experience them in the relationship of their world? And how does that change with the story? How does the world around this character change with the story? How does it, does it, does the person become more a part of this new world as they explore it? Or do they, you know, fight against it, right? Are they a settler who wants to tame the wild and therefore they are challenging what is in front of them all the time? And so it becomes, a, you know, then that could be, in camera shots, right, that could be them, if it's them against the world, right, this shot, large, wide shot of this person, this small person against this big world versus someone who is now as, so maybe shots go from being wider to being, you know, tighter as you start getting into them owning this world and taming it or becoming one with it, right, depending on which way you want to go. Like, So laying that out and then I, those ideas out in a visual way 
gives you you an idea of what you're doing and that pre-thought that allows you to be a lot more spontaneous, right? Everyone says luck is when opportunity and practice, you know, and preparation meet, right? Mm -hmm. So it's allowing yourself to have those moments on set where you have that aha and you've done the prep to have the opportunity to have that luck, right? So the whole point of a lookbook is to really allow yourself a language and build a language that allows you to have a conversation realistically with people about what the world is and why you want to say it in the way you want to say. So your camera team can actually set up shots and lights the way that you, you know, and your grips can put and electricians can put the lights up properly so that your designers know the texture of the world that you want to want to have. I mean, sometimes an image just this is our like base image and everything from this color palette wise, we uh, you know, the texture of it that like one inspirational image is it sometimes you want to collage all your ideas and it's like a mood world board. And I really suggest doing something like that first, creating mood boards uh, of the whole world so you can start synthesizing before you then start laying out concrete ideas. So in doing that process, you get a better understanding of the story you want to tell, which then gives you a resource and a tool to find good designers who can understand that. And do you find, you could take it into an interview with a designer and say, here's what I'm thinking for this story. Tell me what you see. Tell me what you feel from it. Is this something that resonates with you? Because a lot of that is getting people to jump in on your, on your bandwagon, right? And then want to amplify what you're already aiming to say. And it's really hard to look at someone's portfolio or resume and say they can do it or this person can't. And as a designer, I get really frustrated because sometimes people look at my resume or my portfolio and they go, oh, well, you've not done this. So you can't do it clearly because you've never done it. And, um, you know, design is about research. Design is about, you know, for me, it's a lot about the I want to know the why before I know the what. So I do a lot of world research. I will read about, and I think this is important if you're a director, if um, you're a designer, uh, to have conversations that are about what is this world that we're creating? Why are we creating it at this time, in this moment? And what do we want people to walk away from at the end of this film? And some of this is a lot of this actually comes from my training as a theater designer. Theater in a lot of ways is a little better about collaboration than film. And now I prefer film um, as a medium to work in, but the collaborative aspect of theater is a lot stronger. And why do you think that? Because people get together in a room a lot sooner. So like a Broadway show starts conversations months, if not years in advance, depending upon the timeline. It also takes years and years and years to develop it. True. And like, that's the other thing about theater. Theater gets to, theater gets another shot, right? You can workshop a show, it can tank or be okay. And then you get to revisit and fix the mistakes. In film, you've got one shot. You know, you've got one opportunity to make this thing work. And if it doesn't, your story's dead. 
Like, let's be yeah. honest. And like, if, if people haven't taken the time to prep, which I feel like you either, you notice when people do and when they don't. You Like when you get brought onto a project in any vein, you 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 get a sense of it, you know, right away. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I mean, I love how you're, because the way I'm like interpreting what you're saying is the director needs this language to be able to communicate. And if they don't know the world inside and out, upside down and backwards, like how can any designer or actor or, you know, gaffer, whoever know how to do their job? Mm -hmm. You know, that vision, that overall vision needs Mm -hmm. to be so strong and so solid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, you keep going. Well, and I think that's exactly it. And then also with strength of like vision, you have to be willing to go back to the unknown, right? You have to be willing to say, maybe my idea for this wasn't as, isn't as good as, you know, my DP has a great idea and we should go with that or we should try that or, you know, and so much of knowing and what the story is going to really end up looking like and being comes in the editing room. So there's an aspect of uncertainty, no matter how certain you are, right? You could storyboard (laughs) all you want. You can, um, you know, you can think you know what's happening and then you get into the room and it's like, oh, that that didn't work. Well, sometimes I feel like people assume that's a waste, not everybody, but, but that it's a waste of time because a lot of times you storyboard and you get to set and it completely changes everything Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of location Mm -hmm. or where you have to store equipment or Mm -hmm. a lighting thing Mm -hmm. or whatever. But again, it's like, I loved what you said, like the sooner you can get into the world and into what you want this to be, all of that stuff, even if you don't use it, like has contributed Mm -hmm. to the overall end product. It lives in you too. It becomes a part of you. So it's just like, and what it makes me think of too is a lot of, um, I studied at Stella Adler Mm -hmm. and a lot of the training has to do with like really get to know, do the research, learn about the character, Mm -hmm. have all of these things behind it, live in that place. Mm -hmm. So then by the time you're actually on stage or on camera, you are that person. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to think about it. It's just in you. Yeah. And that's what it made me think of when you were no, when it. you were talking around it. And it's a beautiful thing. It's such a a beautiful feeling as a performer to do that. I can only imagine the same. It's, it has to be the same mm-hmm. sort of satisfaction as a designer. Totally, totally. Um, I, I mean, I'm somebody who loves to live with my projects. I love building worlds. Like that's my natural genius as a person. I've always done it. I, it's what I do for fun, and I like to let other people live in the world that I created. So I have the perfect job for like who I am. Like, um, and you're winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Cool. Um, so it's funny you say that because I also think like you should really live with the visuals that inspire you for the story you're telling. I like to put them up. Um, and there is nothing more satisfying to me than actually being able to see the research images that I have playing out, even if they're not necessarily they're like instinctual. Like you just start being like, oh, because you. what happens in the process, right? You go, you do all this visual research. I like to do a lot of world research, historical research. Um, I mean, even I, I did a piece on um, domestic violence and I researched, you know, I did the scenic and the lighting for it. So I researched what it was 
like to be a battered wife and how people held each other. And I was amazed because how I now see it is a very different place than when I went into the project. And if I hadn't done my research, I would be like, well, they just need to leave. I don't understand why they're not leaving. And then there's a woman who talks about her experience as a battered wife. And she said she never saw herself as a victim. She saw herself as a really strong woman in love with a deeply deranged man. And that it wasn't until she realized he'd probably kill her if she didn't leave that she left. And that's a very different place to come from. And that was a very different way then that I approached how I took care of Like, oh, this woman's kitchen is her pride and her joy. And it's her way of making everything okay and showing the love for her husband and like making a nice house and being this really strong woman and who takes care of her family. And that is what this moment is. And you can't, you don't, we only know what we know, right? So part of, for me, the storytelling process is learning what I don't know, living with what I don't know, and asking more questions and then allowing those that to like manifest in visual imagery and then taking that visual imagery, letting that sink in, you start kind of slotting in ideas for throughout the story. And then you get to like actually the brick and mortar aspect of what you're doing and you have to start doing and you can stop, you have to stop thinking. And that's where all of this starts coming in. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, look, I can really see how my thought process has changed with this as we've moved through. You start talking to the cast about how they hold their characters in the world that they're in and, you know, what they're really resonating with. And I really love knowing what draws each character actor to a character because as a costume designer, that helps me help them. And some actors really care about what their clothes are because it helps them tell their story. They really want to feel different. Other people are like, I don't really care. Like I just, it's more cerebral for them. And so then for me, that's great because then I understand I can find out from them who this character is in their mind and then still help them without it feeling like, you know, without it being so hands-on on their end of like what the clothes are. Same with the world. It's kind of amazing how much costume is character, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like as an actor, you don't have to put on something because what, like the way a costume designer, you know, whatever outfit you put they put on you, it puts you in that world. It, mm-hmm. Those little details of, mm-hmm. of what's going on in that character's life, it's, it's really incredible. That's always the solidifying step for me uh, as an actor when I have decided upon my costume, mm-hmm. whether it's I'm figuring that out on my own because I do a lot of indie things, yeah. um, or if you have a designer who's helping, like uh, that's the moment when I fully feel like I am the character Mm -hmm. is when I'm costumed because it can make all the difference in the world. So how do you, um, we've kind of like, uh, played around with this idea around research in some of our last, um, couple of podcasts. What is your process like in researching? Like how do you keep from falling into the abyss of the interwebs and Mm -hmm. like never coming out again? Or, I mean, do you have any sort of, um, tactics or tools that you use to navigate the research world? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's funny. I am kind of a, you listen to my gut of what, when enough is enough, but I really actually think online research is okay. 
going to the library is the most important, right? Yes, I love that. I, the internet is actually a very limited resource. The information that has been regurgitated online is very small into like what exists in the volumes of books that are in libraries. I mean, like, let's be realistic. The internet's been around for what, 25 years, real, you know, at the magnitude that it is now and the information highway. And, um, books have been around for millennia, you know? So (laughs) there's just a lot more information out there than you can find online. And online's a great place to start if you only have a short amount of time. But if you know that you're going to do something um, that requires a lot of, you know, period research, for example, you really need to know about that world. You need to know why the world functions the way it functions, who were the major players that led it to the place that it it currently is. Um, You have a lot of research to do and you're only going to find the tip of the iceberg, if that online. And so it's really going to the library and doing that kind of research and asking librarians for help and going to picture libraries because, you know, picture libraries are great. They document human existence and in a way that you don't always just get in a book, you know, some, there's only a certain number of pages that can be published in a book. Um, and images have notoriously been more expensive so like to do color, that's why like early books didn't have color imagery because it was expensive. So, um, you know, but picture libraries are great because they're a different way of seeing people than like the, you, you know, you can look at a 1920s fashion plate and you're like, this is the world. And then you go look at like photos from the 20s and you're like, that is a small, small, small portion of what the world was. And there's a, such a larger texture to what these people were living that only going off fashion plates is misrepresenting the world. So that's why I think it's so important. So what I like to do is I go and I'm, I'm a hoarder of research. Like I (laughs) gather a lot and then I kind of, what I love to do is pull all my research and I just take any image that resonates with me in the moment. So I don't even think about it. I make sure that it's totally gut instinct. And I'm like, this makes sense, this makes sense, that makes sense. And then all of a sudden, you start pulling all your images. And I'll have like 200 images, 300 images. Um, you take pictures of them? If I'm, yeah. yeah. Now I take pictures. Yeah. Um, but I prefer to print them out. But it's so expensive and wasteful that I feel guilty. Um, but I prefer printing just because I'm a tactile person. Um and so, and I, I like the physical activity of actually ciphering images and realize, you'll start realizing as you go through all the images, certain thing, themes start to arise of what's resonating with you about the story. And so you go through and you look at that process and you say, okay, I'm now like for two or three weeks gathered all these images, gathered all these ideas. I have all these written down notes of what this world is, who these characters are, how they relate to one another. And then, and like, what are the beats of the story? And what do I need to do to hit that? Whether I'm doing, I mean, that's in any department, right? So, and what do I need from the other people on my team to get those beats to hit properly? Like I once 
wanted this character to have like a halo effect behind her, like a little angel, because that was kind of how like she was described in a way. And so I put a sheer hairnet, like um, not hairnet, but um, headscarf on her that when you lit with backlight would give her a little halo of light around her, right? Because it was see-through. And I needed to convey that to the lighting designer because I wasn't lighting. I was just doing the costumes for this piece. So I needed him to achieve what I really wanted to achieve, right? Was to hit this beat and this moment with the costumes and with this character of her arrival. So you start kind of pulling all these things out. And, you know, another good example of this was when I lit Three Penny Opera at grad school, I gave my research images to the scenic designer and said, can you give me something that will allow me? I wanted to shoot through grates because I found a lot of photos from um, the Weimar Republic and that time in Germany that were really aggressive and like agitating. And they were a lot of things like shot through grates and these like harsh shadows. And I wanted to have that in the story, in my story visually. So I said, can you give me this? And so he did. And I got those moments. And all of a sudden, the research and the actual item that you're seeing in front of you, this like physical product, is starting to align. And so you start ciphering out the things in these images and creating a language that you're responding to that you then can bring to your, your fellow teammates to have a conversation of what it could be. People grab onto that, right? Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Like if it if it's researched well and it's like an idea that's mm-hmm. connected to the story, people are like, "Oh my god, yes." And you just build yeah. upon that, which is really cool. Yeah, and I think that's great for like both the directors and I've had many conversations that have changed how the show has, you know, or the um story has gone because in terms of visual because I say, "Hey, well, I found this thing and I thought this could be, you know, what do you think of this idea and how does it resonate with you?" And Um, The biggest mistake people can do is say, oh, I like that or I don't like that or because, you know, it stops the conversation when you, you know, when you do a, a, you know, a thumbs up or a thumbs down on something, that's the end. So if you're really looking to, you know, it goes back to what we were saying earlier, living in the unknown, right? The thumbs up and the thumbs down, that's easy. But being able to articulate why something works and why it doesn't work will give you a better story. So being able to tell you, give real feedback of like, oh, well, this doesn't resonate for me because it's lacking, you know, a layer of texture or depth about this character feels really superficial, right? Or, well, we really need, I feel like we want to see more of them, their face, you know, more of their face or their body to be able to understand them in the relationship of the world and this feels too tight or close. You know, so being able to really articulate what it is that you're seeing and then knowing that what you see and what you feel about it, if you're really careful that you aren't wedded to your ideas and that you're willing to let go in this process. It's a little like you have to surrender, right? So um, I always like to ask myself, is this serving me or is this serving the story? And if it is, is it, doing its job to serve the story because this is about more than myself. And if you keep yourself always in the story, then it's about you and not the characters nor the world. And that's like the most important part. 
every artist needs to be asking themselves that question. That's such an important question. Absolutely, because it's so (laughs) easy to let yourself become consumed with your ideas around it and then you hold on tightly to them like like they're going to wither away, but you're really suffocating them in Mm -hmm. the process and you're not allowing that continuance of discovery and and just creation. You're Mm -hmm. stopping it. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. But it's really easy to get to that place. Yeah. So when you watch films now, do you just, like, I bet you're so, because you are so detailed, Mm -hmm. like, like, does it take you out of the story because you notice things or does it put Mm -hmm. you, no, it puts you in I, it's funny, I, that's another thing, so I just saw Hamilton again and my friend asked me the same question because she's like, how can you enjoy a show if you are so aware of all the things that go into it and you know, I have a background as an actor and a performer, which I did for 10 years. You know, I performed for 10 years really consistently um, and trained. And then I've done costume design. I've done been nominated for best lighting design, like best production design. I, you know, I've really done all areas. Um, and she's like, how do you, how do you go to a show and not have it be work? And I actually... I think because I am such an emotional person, I love the catharsis of watching a show that I can simultaneously enjoy it while trying to like while watching the beats and being like, oh, what is that? I mean, when there's big blaring mistakes, you're like, really, guys. (laughs) (laughs) But you can appreciate the details that they've put in because you know the time and yeah, you know. I was at Ellis Island and there's a big picture of these like people being deported, and I was like, I love stuff like this. Now to everyone else, it's just a picture of four dudes sitting on a bench to be deported. And I look at it and like one guy is dressed to the nines. Like he just looks like he came to the States to do a job and he likes his nice clothes and his nice things. And he's like this slick man who's really very clearly trying to get somewhere in life, right? That's why he came here. He likes nice things. Then you have this other guy who maybe drank too much. Has, doesn't have a lot with his money, you know, doesn't have a lot. You know, the other guy could have been a bandit and that's why, you know, like stolen things and that's why he looks so nice. But um, this other guy, you know, his clothes are a little too small. So he's sitting there and his pants buttons are stretching out and like his, you know, his um, thermals, his union suit is like showing through a shirt and like he's a mess, you know, and the dude next to him is like perfectly dressed, right? And those are the details that I see when I look at an image and they mean something to me, they tell me a story about who this person is and whether it's right or not, it tells you, it tells me a story, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, those are the things that I really love. So when I watch a movie, I can enjoy the, and I tend to do a, like a clocking (laughs) of things. Like I clock certain things as I listen to the story and then I enjoy the story for what it is. Um, I don't like listening, watching stories twice because there's so many that I, I want to see so many things that it's really hard to sit and watch something again. So I feel like I probably miss a lot because I don't get to watch. I don't watch things twice. Um, but unless it's Moana. I just, I only watched it once. I just listened to the music. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Good. Fair. I got to watch Trolls. I haven't seen Trolls yet. I haven't, I haven't seen, seen it, it yet either. either. So I, I can't it. watch Moana yeah. again <laughs> to watch Trolls. Priorities. Do you have designers that you look up to and inspire to or designers 
that every time you see the films or their work, you're just like, God, they just totally get it. Are you, no? I'm the worst at that stuff. That's okay. I I just didn't, you know, I like to know. Yeah, I mean, there are the heavy hitters in the industry, but I'm someone, I've always been so bad about this in a way, or maybe it's a good thing. I'm, or maybe it's an Aryans thing. I, I mean, I have films that excite me and they're more of like the whole film rather than like the designers themselves. So I was really excited by, um, oh my God, I just blanked on his name, but Wes Anderson's movie, The Hotel. Um, um, yeah, yeah, Budapest. 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 Yeah. I was like, it's not Baghdad. Oh, yeah. it's so um, beautiful too. Yeah, like that's kind of something I'd be like, yeah, that's my jam. Um, and, but I'm also, I'm interested in a lot of different worlds, right? So I'm interested in this contemporary world that we currently live in and commenting on that and like having the really real of this world. And then also, you know, worlds like Blade Runner and Star Wars where things are completely made up and you're building a language for the entire world. And I think that's, you know, talking about research and lookbooks, it's about building a language and it's like starting a new society or culture or something, right? Where you're really creating the foundations for what the visual words are that you're, you know, that you're playing at with and what makes up, you know, a visual sentence, right? So it's hard for me to like really say who's like my favorite. And Mm -hmm. then I also, um, there are aspects of people's careers and work that excite me, but for the most part, I'm someone who rather live my own life than pay attention to everyone else's. So <laughs> yeah, I, for maybe so better or worse do you, than not. Do you ever look at films when you're doing your research or you only like go to like pictures, pictures yeah. and, or music or what, whatever it is, it, it, do you ever let other shows inspire something that you're working on? I kind of was taught to never not do that. Do that. Because no, I think you have to be really careful good. about looking at other people's works and mm-hmm. getting wedded to someone else's ideas because it works within the context of their story mm-hmm. unless you are making a specific reference to that moment, right? So if you're you know, commenting on that or that's a part of the storytelling is referencing that, I think that's also wonderful. Like, And I, if I'm designing, you know, when I'm designing, it's very much... I want to know what pieces influence my director. So if they've watched a show, I want to watch that show. Like I watched Breaking Bad because it influenced this one director. So I wanted to understand what it was about that series that they really liked and why they liked it from a visual aspect. Cause that was, they're like, you know, it's like, I want to build a world like that. So then I watched them, but I'm very wary of pulling from other people's visuals unless there is a specific comment that I'm making on it. You know, I'm while copying and mimicking is the highest form of flattery. It is also a quick answer and it's finding a answer rather than the answer. And so unless that reference of another film is the answer and that then I'm uninterested in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So you've done a lot of period pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, I love period pieces mm-hmm. um, so much. And as far as how much does the 
This is a very pointed question. How much does the budget change when you automatically throw a period in there? Does oh. it make so much of a difference? <laughs> Huge difference. Yeah. Huge difference. Um, I, I mean, first off, like my number one piece of advice to any filmmaker, especially if you know you're, you're doing your first feature or your first short or whatever, write a story or find a story that you can actually realistically afford which means it's probably going to be contemporary and it probably needs to be shot in your house or something, right? So, like, Which is the reason why I haven't written a period piece yet. <laughs> I mean, and then, and then also it's finding people who are really good with budget and who are really good at, you know, a big part of being a designer isn't just having the ideas on paper. You know, that's, that's the easiest part of the job. It's really easy to come up with a lot of grandiose designs, but if you can't find that, in the budget and in the time frame that you have, then you're, sorry, like you're failing at your job. And as a designer, you are providing a service to the story and to the people who hired you, right? I am serving you. And um, so there's a lot of things. I mean, I can tell you on average, your average um period, just not from the costume aspect alone. And then production design depends on how big the scope of the film is, how many locations, like. Of course, and like, yeah. Sorry, let me remove my bracelet. Um, I realized I wore like really jangly jewelry today. And oh, I was like, we don't care. Oh. <laughs> so period film definitely does, it relies a lot and also like the time frame, right? So for costumes, I can give you a really definitive answer of, what things are going to cost. Um, for production design and all of that, it really depends on the like scope and the magnitude, like how many locations, how big are the locations. Like the problem with shooting a period piece tight and really any piece really tight is that we understand characters based on the world that they live in. And when it's period, sci-fi, you know, fantasy, any built world, we need to see that world in order to understand who these characters are, where they come from, and how to hold them. So it's very important to see a lot, as much of the world as you can possibly afford so that makes things a lot more expensive from the production side. Um, from a period, from a costume standpoint, the average like 19, I'd say like 1940s to 50s to con you know, close earlier periods will cost you between $250 to $350 a look. So that's like kind of like a broad, like a baseline, basically. And then if you want to actually have nicer things and um, be more accurate, it'll go up from there. Now, if you start going further back, especially like if you're looking, you know, you have to ask yourself, with the clothes at least, and even with the props and the furniture and what is the action that's happening on this? Because we can use and rent real pieces, but if they're being really, you know, moving a lot or doing more than walking in and out of a room in the clothes, you're probably gonna have to build that because period clothing and period furniture and fabrics, they disintegrate. And that means you're gonna have to build things or repair things a lot. So you have to be really careful about when you use a real period garment and then when do you have that built. So if you're going to build something, it used to be you would say, 
I need $5,000 for an outfit to include, like to build so that I have the cost for labor, fabric, you know, notions, all that stuff. Now you can do it for cheaper and it's been done for cheaper. So people now say like $3,000. And like, we're talking about like how people budget out for like, you know, it's kind of taught that number for budgeting out when I was in, in school. Um, it just depends on like the kind of fabric you choose and how realistic, you know, clothing's also a story of like technology and what has been created and when. So they didn't have synthetics, you know, in the 1800s. So you could go with a blend, but it won't won't respond to light like it would. It won't move it the won't same. Move, yeah, the like, same way. The authenticity it won't feel is the off. same way to yeah. the people wearing it. You know. Yeah, it so, makes you walk a different way. Mm-hmm, you and, know. Yeah, and how like, heavy it is, and yeah. So that's like all of that is a part of, you know, where are you gonna spend your money? Like, it's fine if it's on background, but you really want the real textures when you get close up. So. um and all that costs money. So that's kind of a really quick yeah. answer to like No, the that's cost. great. I didn't expect for you to answer all, like to really like explain it all. Yeah, well, so another example, um, if you're going to do something more specialized, like I once was pricing out um, some Nanook costumes. Is that the right term? No. Inuits. Oh, Nanook yeah, is yeah. a name. Inuits. Well, I sound horrible right there. But an Inuit costume. Um, and it was going to be 600 to a thousand dollars to get the real pieces and they wanted real fur. And I feel very, uh, strongly that if you are representing different ethnic groups, that you represent them accurately and that that is a sign of respect and cutting corners is unacceptable when doing, you know, different ethnic groups. I mean, we have to cut corners and you have to cut corners, but getting as close to possible and then pulling back is what I always like to do. So, you know, that kind of a costume will cost you like six to $750 from a LA rental house. And really the other problem with doing a period in New York is there's only really two rental houses in the city that do them. And one of them, it's 150 for a suit. And we're just talking about the jacket and the pants. And the other one, it's $300 for a suit, just jacket and pants. So real cheap. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so if, so, so it also means you have to then, and the thing with period is it depends on the size and the shape of the person, right? So you might find the perfect suit, but guess what? It's the wrong size. So you have to rely on LA and then that's like sending a lot of stuff from LA out to the East coast. And I once did a show, we had $10,000 in freighting costs. We shot in, yeah, we shot out here. We had a ton of period stuff. We went from 1840s to today and there's not much out here, especially when you, for the earlier stuff. And so you really have to draw you know, and then military, they're like most military stuff is all done in LA and sent out here. So if you ever see a New York production that's got, you know, a ton of military, most of that. I mean, Kaufman's is great. They'll do a lot as well. But like earlier military go has to come from LA usually 
There's sometimes issues with like certain types of police officers and their uniforms. So some of that has to come from LA. Um, It's crazy. I would have never even thought about the fact that um, one coast specializes in something more than the other. Well, it's not really as specialized as like look at the history of filmmaking, right? Mm -hmm. So filmmaking has its genesis in the United States. And while the rest of the world was fighting World War I and II, we were fine. And Hollywood didn't get, you know, blown to bits. So while everyone else is trying to survive, especially after World War II, Hollywood is like doing great because it was almost uninterrupted and also really desired because it was an escape from the war. And so those are like those golden years of Hollywood. And so LA has, you know, a hundred years of just gathering and collecting and, you know, that's huge when you look at the resources that are there and why they're there. And then there's the, you know, so there's that fact. And then there's the fact that filmmaking used to be so expensive. It was really hard to open up a studio somewhere because you needed a lot of space. And everybody that knew what they were doing was in LA, right? And that's where the studios were. And this was before, you know, we had, and I don't know enough about this to really be an expert, but just before studios ruled the world of filmmaking. Yeah. And so if you didn't have a studio, the studios were in LA. And then what I found out on my show I work on now, which is Kevin Can Wait, we, um, you know, we're the first sitcom to be out in New York since the Cosby show. And so incredible. What I found out is that it, the scenic, you know, production design on most studios, like location, like the actual location of a studio, you know, if you have a sitcom, it's on a big studio lot. And then there's a warehouse on the studio lot of resources that you can then pull from and borrow to save the production's money. Well, we don't have those that setup out here, right? So the, there's certain advantages that came to being on a studio lot. You had stock sets that you could kind of adjust and tweak a little bit to make it your own, but they were a part of that world and cut on production costs. And that's the same with the the costumes. You know, Warner Brothers has their own costume stock. So you can go and pull for that. And you can actually rent from them. So we rented for one of the pieces. um, I did a period piece for the Independence Hall that I assisted on. And we, it was all set in the set, you know, it's Revolutionary War and it was about our founding fathers and the history of Independence Hall a lot of our background costumes and a lot of our costumes in general came from um, Warner Brothers and they were leftovers from the Patriot, you know, and background from that, <sighs> right? Um, so, yeah, so like there is kind of knowing where you have to, also like big part of the job is knowing where you can find things. And um, so have you guys supplemented on Kevin Can Wait not having – those resources. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, I know for them, there's a lot of, you know, renting. There's a lot of renting. renting. You know, you rent, yeah. you build, we build a lot. We have an amazing, you know, we're building out our own. I've, I mean, I'm talking from, I'm the assistant costume designer, so I'm talking what I see. They do, a, I mean, they do an incredible job. We have a great scenic um, construction crew and then a great 
like scenic department that does all the painting of all the sets and the art department's really great. And, you know, they all work really hard to like really, it's just a lot more building than they would do in LA and a lot more um, renting and, you know, buying of things. So it's just a different way of working. It doesn't, it's just more, and it costs more money. That's really only the difference. So you know? we see why there are not more sitcoms here already. Well, I mean, there's a, there's just no, like all the studios that are out here are like for hire versus being like a Warner Brothers lot or a, you know, they're, so what you have are, you know, studios for hire, like Kaufman is a studio for hire. You rent the space out to do your show and sometimes it's in co-production and they might give you, you know, but usually it's not. So like those things aren't necessarily a given. You know, there's um, Broadway Stages is is one that has kind of come up through the ranks of um, studios and they were great. They bought like a whole bunch of property out in Greenpoint and turned them in old warehouses into studios. My first TV show was in one of them and it's, again, it's a space for hire. And so once your production's done, you shut down and then you, you know, um, somebody else comes in and then maybe you'll go back depends on the production. Like we're really lucky with Kevin. We just have the space year round. So we didn't really have to wrap out or load out. We just got, everything got to stay put. And so that was kind of nice. It made wrap really fast. Um, it just kind of depends. That's crazy. I want to end with, um, if you had like an unlimited budget, what kind of world would you want to create? Is there a certain kind of world? Like, would it be more going back in time or creating a world like an avatar or Star Wars mm. or all of the above. <laughs> you um, want to do everything. Yeah. No. <laughs> I am a student of life in the world and I want to learn more. So living in one world kind of forever and ever disinterests me. But um actually how, how is working on a one show then that like a sitcom really kind of stays? Well, right now it's great. Yeah. You know, for this yeah. moment in my life and yeah. in time this is the perfect job for me, yeah. right? Um, sitcoms work small, shorter hours. So, and then we have a week off after every three episodes. So I really have get a, to pick up other stuff. Well, actually, I get time for my own stuff. It's really yeah. more what it is, and yeah. to breathe and have a little bit of a life. Um, and you have the consistency too. Yeah, and I know I can actually budget out how much money you know. So those things are like great. Right. Um, <laughs> Sitcoms. Yeah, it's great. Um, I wish I lived closer. I commute two and a half hours to three hours a day and that blows. Yeah. Um, but cause we film in long Island and I live in Brooklyn. Um, but to answer your question about what I want to do, I actually started writing my own stories. So I'm working on, I have three projects and because I like to let my mind do its thing, I let whatever story wants me to work on it come up and then I work on it. Um, and so one of them is contemporary and it's really dealing, it's a lot like, I don't know how to describe it, but um, it's a little like Fight Club meets maybe Pan's Labyrinth. Like, um, <laughs> cool. And it's that about sounds amazing. Um, a heightened experience of, I've just now changed it, right? So it's a CEO who's struggling with severe anxiety and anxiety can come with what's called, um, it's like a separation from reality. So you don't really feel it's like what, like you feel like you're in your body, 
you don't feel like you're in your body. You feel like you're watching life happen around you and that things aren't really real and the lines of reality get blurred. I'm pretty fascinated with that aspect of life. The other project I'm writing and working on, and again, these are because I want to explore the visual world. So like this first piece, there's a lot of these moments where you're in the character's head and you know there's like a one experience where she deals with an eating disorder and body dysmorphia. So she is part of her anxiety. And so she has this experience where her like she's trying to hold in her fat, but she can't. And it just keeps expanding. And that like fear and anxiety of being like overweight and being unwanted and unworthy uh, because of this, right? And so there's a very visceral visual. She's like literally, you know, squishing her body to keep it in, in and it's not working. The other piece I'm working on is an adaptation of the yellow wallpaper. And I fell in love with the visual world that came as I first listened to the story on audio um, shorts. And it's about a woman who, back in the 1890s, who is sentenced to a, or prescribed, I should say, a rest therapy and rest treatment because she was, you know, having issues of hysteria and, and like a nervous tendency. And in the 1800s, when women had any emotions or thoughts, they were yeah. <laughs> they were considered to be having a problem. Yeah. And there is this issue called the wandering uterus where they thought what? that your uterus was like wandering around your body, creating problems and that you just needed to rest and you needed to be pregnant and you needed, you know, and like... Because that solves everything. Right. Oh, Lord and, Jesus. And so that it was just in search of semen and that like giving it semen would like, yeah. So, I mean, I've kind of found out all of that as I researched this world because um, it's really a story about what happens when you negate someone's voice and the perils of solitary confinement. Because she, in the rest therapy, you are not allowed to, um, you're not allowed to have any stimulating conversations. You're not allowed to do any work. You have to lay, be left to rest for 22 hours in a day with prescribed amounts of exercise you get an hour of exercise a day. What does this sound like? It sounds like solitary confinement in prisons, but... Um, and you wonder why women, like the way that they viewed women, it influenced and made them be a way mm -hmm. that they weren't. Yeah. So if you tell someone you're crazy and you constantly say you're crazy... They start is, to believe. They're crazy. They're crazy, yeah. And, um, you know, I really think that a really big problem that we have, right? You know, so a lot of the ways, like why that term, like stop being crazy is such a trigger for women because it's immediately a cutoff, right? It's like the thumbs up, thumbs down, right? End of conversation. We have shut that door. You are being crazy and what you have to say does not matter because of this. So I just like fell in love with that idea. And I'm, you know, we have what are called social skills, Skills are things that need to be worked on. And when you take somebody out of society as punishment or as treatment or whatever you think you're doing, you are actually cutting them off from the things that they need the most to survive, which is social skills. And it's really a story about what happens when you negate someone's voice. And it's a little bit of a horror story. It is a horror story. Sounds hor um, horrifying Well, to so me. she sees this, like the whole story is out. You can, it's, um, free domain right now. Um, the woman, there's this horrible wallpaper in the room and she at, starts to see it come to life. 
And it's also a love story to lighting because she talks about how the wallpaper changes with the different times of day and how that affects how you see, how she sees it. So the lighting designer in me is like, this is amazing. Um, and then, and then she starts seeing this woman and she tries to get the woman out. And by the end, she like becomes this woman, spoiler. Um, she becomes this woman, the wallpaper in her mind. And so the, in the, during the period mm. it was considered a horror story and it's a question of was there somebody in the wallpaper or was she driven to madness right wow that um, just gave me chill pumps that's awesome so i i mean i'm like fascinated with the idea of how do you then i'm a big believer too like the worst words on set are we'll fix it in post oh. you'll know uh, yeah. yeah those you know that or we'll deal with it in post and i yeah. am a big like get as much as you can right in camera because that's it right again you get one shot and if you mess it up, yeah. it's dead, right? Yeah. So when going back and redoing it costs more than just doing it right the first time. And it's finding everything again. And it's finding the people. It's finding right. the the set. It's yeah. getting the, like, people don't even, oh, we'll, we'll do such and such later, pickups later, whatever. And it's no. like, no. No, you won't. Like, no, no you won't. No, do you won't. Now. But also, you ruin the momentum of your story, right? Yes. And a lot of, it goes back to, luck right and the preparation and the opportunity and a part of that is momentum and if you pull out the rug you're only going to fall right yeah. so um yeah so fixing it in post so I'm really fascinated with like building this world and it's a lot about stillness and being alone and what it's like to be alone and to start losing the edges of reality and you know, I believe there's a cognitive reality and then there's like a personal reality. And we all see moments from our own eye and sometimes they align with what everyone else sees and sometimes they're very different, you know, and I'm fascinated by that. Um, really, since both of the stories you told us about how to deal with um, yeah. people and their perception of reality. Yeah, mm -hmm. these two are very much about that. I mean, it's amazing, right? How like you can be like, oh my God, I said something and I offended this person and they just made that face and I totally messed this whole thing up. And then you're like, hey, did I offend you? And they're like, what are you talking about? You're like, like cool, I never mind. Like, <laughs> great, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, oh yeah. So I'm fascinated with that. And then the third piece I'm working, and again, these are worlds I want to create. These are, the worlds are both, these two worlds are very visual. And then the third one, also visual, it's very different, but more of a, it's a historical nonfiction drama based on a lot of historical facts. Um, so 17, it deals with a um, girl who is in the slums whose family is basically on the brink of destitution. And her brother is an alcoholic in the gin craze. And her dad is dead. Her mother's dying from tuberculosis. And they live in the rookeries, which were the slums of London in the 1700s which were some of the few buildings standing after the London fire in the 1600s. And they're called the rookeries because all the pole, there's poles holding up all of the buildings. So it just looks like a um, raven's nest, which is called a rookery. So mm. in it, when it's silhouetted. So this story is about this girl who gets essentially boyfriended or blackmailed into the sex industry by way of being a naked prize fighter. And it's actually was something that happened. And, in the 1720s, boxing became a sport, and shortly after, women started fighting naked underground. Now, I boxed, so and I love it's my favorite period. So I was like, this is, and it's that 
it's also a period where women with no birth, you know, no claim, no title, no lineage, a street urchin, if she played her cards right, could find her way to becoming a duchess. And it happened, there were a couple stories. It was a very dangerous game because you basically were a courtesan and you had to rise through the ranks and use your wit and your guile to get there. And, you know, there's a lot of amazing women in this period where they really fought hard to find a better life and use their smarts. And the story is about that and fighting for your life and also what happens when you've been exploited. Can you bounce back? Can you not, right? So the the that's that world, you and know, and how, then that's it's, just... It's also how it like affects once you get to where you thought you wanted to be. Like how you got there affects you when you get there. Yeah. So... Because it's like, a part of your story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, that's and really And you can love it or hate it, you know? Right. You so, can... Those yeah. all sound amazing. I want you to have all the money so you can make them because I want to ah, see them. <laughs> Thank you. You're I'm welcome. really like or trying to get them done so I can start working because my dream is to get to do these and um, just have the time. To, I'm a creator, so I just need, you know, I, I know. constant yeah. ideas. I mean, we get you. As Elise knows, I have a, I have a garment bag company that I created. So my called set ready. And that's like another Abby. Like I just am someone who needs to constantly come up with ideas and then bring them to life. And that, that is my sole purpose. So (laughs) thank you for the well wishes. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Well, you are, you're definitely living that purpose for sure. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, tell everyone in, um, who is listening where they can find you. I'm, you can find me um, uh, at sarahcogan.com. So that's S-A-R-A-H-C-O-G-A-N.com. It's an amazing website. I really like it. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and then, uh, on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash Sarah Cogan design industries. And I say, I'm not very big on social media. Again, I like to think, and I find social media to get in the way of my action. And so I tend to you're away from it. <laughs> so go to her website and contact her instead. Yeah. And you can um, email me directly at hello at sarahcogan.com. And um, I'm happy to answer any questions. And please email me because I actually want to open up a course on doing a lookbook and how to get there and answer any questions like that. So I'd love to hear questions from all your viewers of like, what you guys want to learn about and if it interests you on doing a course like this and how do you want it to be like do at your own pace or be a group activity where we like how that would be helpful and then I can kind of structure the whole thing for that. That's beautiful. Yeah. You guys take advantage of that for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sitting and sharing and talking with us. I could literally talk to you all day long. You have so much, you have so much knowledge and I just want to eat it all up. Um, Mm -hmm. but thank you so much for sitting with us and talking. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. Thanks thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you guys. Bye. Thanks. Thanks.